Hello and welcome to yet another episode of Fragments of Fear, a podcast where Rachel Nisbet and myself, PTM Stodd, take on the good, the bad and the ugly among the lesser discussed jelly. How are things in Scotland, Rachel? Yeah, it's not too bad. I'm feeling a wee bit festive, so I've got my mug of mulled wine here, which I just brought myself on um, prior to us <laughs> sitting record. Uh, so yeah. Ouch. <laughs> Going okay. <laughs> How are you? I'm good, thanks. Yeah, I get into a festive mood as well. Hopefully I'll, I'll have some time off over Christmas so I can get a few films in. That's what I'm hoping anyway. Yeah, fingers crossed. Apart from that, I'm just cursing myself for forgetting to bring up certain discs during our conversation on our favourite discs of the year for the latest Patreon podcast. <laughs> but that's always the case with lists, isn't it? I know you keep seeing other people like tweet about films. You're like, oh yeah, that came out this year and didn't cover that or whatever. But it's always yeah. the way it is, isn't it? I think everybody knows that when we come up with these titles, it's just more of a selection of what we can think of that evening, really. Yeah. <laughs> Not to say we don't like, do prep, but yeah. Yeah, and it's good in a way because it means that there are so many Eurocot-related titles coming out in the year that we can't remember them all. Yeah, exactly. It's a very good way of looking at it. It's just hard to keep up, isn't it? It is hard to keep up. I've got stuff on the way from the Severin Black Friday sale and from Vinegar Syndrome. I got a shipping notice today. Oh, nice. I think I need to order that. I was going to see if I could get a comp copy, but I probably should actually go and buy it. I'm <laughs> just hoping one appears. Um, but you're posting my selfie at the minute. No, he always loves me. <laughs> More Blu-rays. Yeah. Have you watched anything good lately? Yeah, actually. I've thought about this instead of doing my usual thing of going, oh, I can't remember anything. Yeah. <laughs> so I watched Anna Tinto Brass's Nero Subbianco from 1969 the other night, which I'd never seen before, which is weird because I think I've seen most of Tinto Brass's films. I'm, I mean, like when I say most of them, I mean like pretty much the, the whole uh, range of yeah, like softcore and whatever else. But yeah, this one's just escaped yeah. now. I haven't seen either so is it is it worth seeking out yeah no no definitely it's i suppose it's an example of one of those films that i really love and i think you're pretty much a big fan of these sorts of films as well you know those like 1960s counterculture yeah. type um films with a socio-political bent and obviously you can kind of argue with it being tinsel brass and kind of a product of its time like how much of that is really posturing and how much of it's valid but you get all these nice kind of segments well i say nice maybe that's not the right word but um oh you know the vietnam war and gender politics of the era and then there's lots of really interesting avant garde imagery with fast cuts and you know like avant-garde kind of arty compositions and pop art so I think yeah from on a visual level it's really interesting and politically like you know it's a snapshot of its time it's probably not the deepest of films even if it's purporting to be deep but yeah, um, yeah I would recommend it looks great and it's quite different what about you what have you watched of late over the last month anything interesting well, since we last recorded, I've basically just watched mainstream stuff for the latest week or so, apart from research stuff for the podcast. I saw The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss, which I really enjoyed. I thought that was good. And the 40-year-old version on Netflix. Watched Freaky, which was which was good fun as well. And I saw a slightly topical uh, for December. I watched Krampus with my friends on Zoom, but it seems like I'm the only person that's not a big fan of this film. I've never seen Krampus, so I can't comment, but it's one of those films that seems to be very popular on social media. Um, I don't know how yeah. much of that is just to do with the fact it's a Christmas horror film, but you weren't a fan then. No, I wasn't a fan at all. And I'm not a great fan of Michael Doherty's um, other horror film Trick or Treat either, or at least not as much as some other people. I, I did prefer that to this one, but yeah. God, I sound really negative now, but... <laughs> 
it it didn't work for me. Oh, and you'll like this. I watched oh. um, The Naked Face with uh, Roger Moore. Oh, yay, Rog, my old friend. Yeah, the Brian Forbes uh, thriller with uh, Rod Steiger and Elliot Gould. It was okay. It wasn't great. But, I mean, anything that Elliot Gould is in, then I'm happy. Yeah, Elliot Gould and Roger Moore. I mean, that's kind of worth a watch just alone for the casting. Exactly. But saying that, we've broken our streak now of thought we were going to get away with an episode without reference to James Bond in any capacity, <laughs> but it's gone out the window now. <laughs> Yeah, only about two minutes in or something. <laughs> it's a new record. Yeah, but no, it's good. It's like especially over Christmas, you tend to kind of watch more popular films. I know some people are like use it as a time to get through all their um Euro cult stuff that they haven't been able to digest yet. But yeah, there's something quite nice about family films and Zoom films and watching endless terrible Christmas movies. Yeah, it'll no doubt be trading places and that sort of thing. Oh yeah, of course. So before we get started, we'd just like to welcome our new patron. Daryl, who's come aboard this month. So welcome to the fold. And we hope that you enjoy our additional content. Thank you for pledging to us. And all of that content is available via our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash fragments pod, where you'll have access to broader discussions about the shallow and shallow adjacent content. Yeah, and it's up to nearly 10 hours of extra content now. So 10 more hours of listening to us, just what yeah. people want for the festive season. <laughs> Yeah. And as always, throughout the course of this episode, we're going to be discussing the intricacies of the film's plot and ending, so there will be spoilers. So, might as well get into it, right? Yeah, we might as well. Okay, let's go. So, today we're going to be talking about La Morta e de Moda, aka Fashion Crimes, a 1989 giallo from Bruno Gaburo. Now this film came out at the tail end of the 1980s and throughout the decade there had been a bit of a resurgence of the models in Peril Jalli that populated the early 1970s but obviously began with Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace in 1964. As we've mentioned before these are films that take place in the world of fashion and feature models as protagonists and victims and even killers. And this strain of 1980s fashion-focused films really sought to capture the glamour and excesses of the period, often honing in on the world of the supermodel, with titles such as Nothing Underneath, Delirium and Too Beautiful to Die being prime examples. Fashion Crimes was developed in the wake of the success of Carlo Vincina's Nothing Underneath, and we can see similar elements between both films, not only in terms of the focus on the fashion world, but also in the quasi-supernatural psychic bent that exists in both films. So despite bearing some of the hallmarks of the classic Jolly, as I'm sure we'll get into, um, it's safe to say that Fashion Crimes was very much made in the template of nothing underneath or drew heavily from it and other models in peril jolly of the time. Whilst Fashion Crimes might not be overly interesting or a standout title in the examination of the Italian thriller, it arguably represents the last dying breaths of that models in peril resurgence in the 1980s before the genre veers into erotic thriller territory off the back of the success of Basic Instinct in 1992. And Fashion Crimes very much encapsulates that lower end style of thriller that we did start to see more of in the 80s. 
series. It has a markedly televisual style. Um, the lack of budget certainly creates limitations in terms of the overall quality of the production. And so in many ways, we're seeing a film industry in decline here. And it feels very much like the sun is setting on a certain phase in the Italian thriller. So we thought it would be an interesting title to discuss because Bruno Gabiro's Two Chalets from 1989, Fashion Crimes and Spogliando Valeria, are very rarely mentioned, um, have little in the way of discussion about them. So we thought at least one of Gabiro's Chalets deserved a fragments treatment. Peter, you'll now go into Gabiro's backgrounds and some of the other films he directed throughout the course of his career, I think. Yeah. As you said, the film was directed by Bruno Gaburo, and it's credited to Joe Brenner, one of his many pseudonyms. Gaburo was born on June 5th, 1939 in Rivagaro, in the Piacenza province of Emilia-Romagna. After acting school, he worked extensively in documentary filmmaking as an assistant and later directing his own shorts. In 1962, he met Enrica Bianchi Colombat, better known as Erika Blanc, while he was shooting a documentary and three days after their first meeting they, they got engaged and 20 days later they married. <laughs> and they travelled to Paris where they lived a bohemian lifestyle with Erika working as a model and Bruno taking photos of tourists in the streets but eventually they left the French capital and returned to Italy. Erika appeared in a travelling review show as a dancer but they didn't make a lot of money and barely scraped by Bruno even having to sell his beloved Aeroflex camera. But in the mid-60s Erica started getting film roles and they settled in Rome, staying in a commune with other creative types, like for example actress Lucretia Love. Gaburo made his directorial debut in 1968 with Ecco Omo, Behold the Man, which he'd written with Giacomo Gramegma. The film is perhaps best known for its Ennio Morricone soundtrack, but it's a, it's a fairly interesting post-apocalyptic drama about a family, Philippe Leroy, Irene Papas, and their son, played by Marco Stefanelli, who are living on their own on the beach when two men played by Gabriele Tinti and Frank Wolf suddenly appear. After Eke Homo, Gaburo was viewed as somewhat of an intellectual, but he didn't have any offers of new films to direct coming in. And with a daughter, Barbara, born in 1970, he needed to work. He didn't manage to get any of his own projects off the ground until 1973, when he directed his own screenplay, Nobody's Children, that he'd written with um, Garamegna and Ambrogio Melteni. The film starred his wife as well as Gabriele Tinti again, and Chris Avram, and was shot on a limited budget. He followed it up with sex comedies such as the Joe D'Amato lens Scandal in the Family starring Michele Placido and Jenny Tamburo and that was hugely successful and brought in nearly a billion and a half in 1975. His next film Il Letto in Piazza was not nearly successful and barely brought in half of what Scandal in the Family did. His marriage with Blanc ended in 1977 and Gaburo continued to make erotic films before eventually starting to do straight up porn under the pseudonym Orubak Onur which brings us up to 1989 and fashion crimes. The story in the screenplay was written by producer Luciano Apignani and as you said clearly inspired by Vancina's successful Nothing Underneath. The film was originally planned to have been directed by Riccardo Cesani but Apignani and Cesani fell out and the director was replaced by Bruno Gaburo. It's really interesting especially to get the background on um, his marriage with Erica Blanc that's quite intriguing when you get those like personal details about how people connect with other they're well-known people in the industry. Yeah I didn't actually know that until I started doing research for this so like you said it's interesting to see how these people are connected with each other yeah you wonder kind of how big the scene was back then like how well known people were to each other like certain figures yeah yeah Interesting. I'm sure a lot of the people we talk about on the podcast certainly kind of have come into contact with other people, even if they didn't work with them, yeah. they kind of knew of them. So I'm sure there's loads of stories yeah, that we'll never find out. And... Yeah, exactly. So I want to know, like, what happened to all these parties and yeah. these strange um, partnerships? 
So I'll just give a brief synopsis of fashion crimes before we start discussing the players in the film. Young fashion model Gloria is driving home one evening after a photo shoot when her car breaks down outside an isolated villa in the country. She enters the villa looking for assistance and stumbles across a man and a woman at the midst of a struggle as bombastic opera music plays in the background. Believing she's witnessed a murder, Gloria flees, but in her panic is involved in a near miss with a lorry. When she comes to in the hospital, she informs the police of what she witnessed at the villa, but when Commissioner Rizzo and his assistant investigate the site, they find that the villa, previously owned by German countess Greta Stella and her husband, has laid dormant for 20 years. Gloria's doctor recommends that she works through her trauma with eminent psychiatrist Dr. Gianmarco Contini via the use of hypnosis, in which Gloria discovers that her connection to the murders goes far beyond what she is perceived to have taken place, for she has a psychic link to the events that happened 20 years ago, and the culprit will do anything to keep her silent. That's well summed up. The lead, Gloria, is played by Teresa Leopardi, and we sort of have to mention her because, as, as we said, she is the lead, but at the same time, she's one of those actresses that just seem to have disappeared off the grid. She appeared in this which seems to have been her debut, French TV series Le Gorilla, and then finally in Arizona Road, Escape from Chienta, and Fabrizio De Angelis actioner starring Antonio Sabato Jr. and Luca Castell. but that seems to have been it for her in the Italian film industry so a very brief, not really a bio here, is just her IMDB listings really. We tried to give you something more but it's been really difficult to find any info at all about yeah she seems to have vanished because i had a wee look as well and sometimes you turn up people's instagrams or facebooks or whatever but i mean obviously she's probably married and doesn't use that name anymore i don't even know if that is her real name but yeah a bit of an odd one because there's not really a trace of her but then i guess there's not like a rabid fashion crimes fan base trying to locate her so maybe that's why (laughs) probably not but the next player is is a much more familiar name at least yeah we go from somebody that nobody's really heard of and hasn't heard of since to probably one of the most well-known actors anthony Franciosa, who's arguably a much bigger star than Teresa Leopardi. Anthony Franciosa was born as Anthony George Papaleo in New York to Italian-American parents in 1928. He was brought up in the Little Italy area of the city, and when he was 18, he began free dance lessons at the local YMCA, which led to a role in a production of Chekhov's The Seagull, which was the catalyst to Franciosa pursuing a career in acting. He then went on to privately study theatre acting and obtained a scholarship at the Dramatic Workshop in New York. In the late 1940s, he joined the Cherry Tree Theatre Group and shortly after became a member of the Actors Studio. In order to support his pursuit of acting, Franciosa worked numerous odd jobs to keep himself afloat, and in 1953 he finally managed to make his Broadway debut, appearing in End as a Man and Wedding Breakfast the subsequent year. This led to acting roles in television, but his breakout theatrical role came in 1957 in A Hatful of Rain, in which he was nominated for a Tony Award for his performance. Franciosa then made his cinematic debut in 1957 in Elia Kazan's A Face in the Crowd, followed by performances in This Could Be the Night and the cinematic adaptation of A Hatful of Rain, in which he reprised his role. He continued to work in various cinematic productions, which largely proved to be successful, and he was thought of as a part of the same generation of actors such as Marlon Brando. He was in fact supposed to star in Orpheus Descending, a role that then later went to Brando. From those early successes, it was assumed that Franciosa would go on to have a very successful career because he was a rather talented actor and he was very much in demand during that period. But unfortunately, it didn't quite pan out that way. Franciosa was notorious for being rather hot-tempered. His antics off-screen attracted attention. He was actually married multiple times, four wives in total, although his final marriage proved to be a success. He was arrested for assaulting a photographer and went to prison for 10 days. And he notoriously hated Hollywood and couldn't wait to jet back to New York when he was done filming on the West Coast. 
So you can imagine all of these things added up and somewhat impacted on his work. Um, so despite steadily working throughout his career post-1950s, he never really had those sorts of hugely successful cinematic roles. However, he did find a lot of work in television um, in lots of different TV series, lots of popular and well-regarded television movies. So he was certainly a success on that level. As this is a podcast about Shadow, uh, we've got to mention his most well-known role to fans of Italian genre cinema, and that's his performance as Peter Neal in Tenebrae. As we all know, it was fairly common for American actors to find work in Italian cinema, and Franziosa previously had dealings with the Italian film industry, starring in Mora Bolognini's Senlita, aka Careless, in 1962, alongside Claudia Cardinale. The role of Peter Neal was reportedly offered to Christopher Walken, but of course went to Anthony Franciosa instead. And I think we can all agree that Franciosa's performance in Argento's film is excellent, and it's incredibly hard to imagine anyone else in the role, never mind Christopher Walken. After Tenebrae, uh, Franciosa continued to work in television. Um, he was in multiple Aaron Spelling productions, such as Finder of the Lost Loves. And then, obviously, he was in Fashion Crimes, which brings us um, to the subject of today's episode. He sadly passed away of a stroke in 2006 at the age of 77. It's interesting what you say about him not having the career that people sort of expected him to have because he's he's a really good actor. Obviously, his role as Peter Neal is a standout performance. Yeah, it's it's a shame because obviously he's you know theatrically trained and had a very promising career to begin with. And I feel almost bad seeing that biography of him because it, it kind of comes across like, oh, he never was like that big a success or never had the success that people thought he would. And that's not to denigrate his talent as an actor or to say, you know, being in TV or Italian films or whatever is like less than but I think yeah at one point it, you know he like you said he was going for roles and stuff that Marlon Brando eventually got um, and he was in yeah. these really successful productions um, and for yeah whatever reason didn't come to fruition but yeah supposedly his attitude wasn't always great you never know though what contributes to people not kind of making it in Hollywood but maybe wasn't much yeah. of a game player who knows yeah next up is psychiatrist Gianmarco Contini who's played by Miles O'Keefe, who was born on June 20th, 1954 in Ripley, Tennessee. Athletic from an early age, O'Keefe attended the United States Air Force Academy, where he played on the football team and subsequently played football at a number of universities. He studied political science and psychology and worked as a prison counsellor at Tennessee State Prison before moving to Los Angeles in 1980, where he quickly was cast as Tarzan in John Derrick's Tarzan the Ape Man. And it was the Italian movie industry who was the quickest out of the blocks and saw potential in the athletic looking American. He was quickly cast as Ator in Joe D'Amato's Ator the Fighting Eagle, released in the autumn of 1982. He would go on to star in two more Ator films for D'Amato and also appeared in a number of films in Italy and France, working for directors such as Ruggiero Diodato, Alfonso Brescia, Bruno Mattei and Stavio Massi. And he also appeared in American productions such as the role of Count Dracula in Anthony Hickok's 1988 horror film Waxwork. A lot of people outside Eurocult fandom in the UK will be familiar with him through the chat show So Graham Norton in the 90s where Graham Norton used to have him on as a guest and phoned him regularly. O'Keefe seems to have stopped working in the movie business in the mid-2000s, having a sole credit in a short in 2010 as his last entry, but it's been difficult to find out what he's been up to recently because he's got no social media presence and there's very little info about him online, so unfortunately don't know what he's doing now. He's quite a typical lead in an Italian 80s production, often American actors where they went for the hunky looking man and acting ability sort of seconds, I'd say. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. It's that thing when you start to see in these maybe like mid to late 80s or 90s films, suddenly the men become a bit more, I kind of almost want to say like a bit more in the style of Fabio 
Yeah. You used the word hunky, which is probably like, not that I think he's hunky, but I'm going to make cringing him. Um, but yeah, like that kind of style, isn't it? Like almost like a bit model-esque. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, very much in that vein. But that's so interesting that he's disappeared off the face of the earth, it seems, because like you say, like regular fixture on Graham Norton in the UK. Um, so you'd think there'd be some sort of interest or he had enough of a public profile. It's quite curious. I, I don't like stuff like that. I'm like, where did they go? Yeah. <laughs> what is he up to now? Um, and then we have um, Marina Giulia Cavalli as Dr. Olga. Now, Dr. Olga is a particularly prominent character in the film, but Marina Giulia Cavalli is certainly one of the more established actors in fashion crimes. Uh, well, certainly compared to Teresa Leopardi, anyway. Marina was born in Portland, Oregon in 1960. She and her family then relocated back to Italy. Her father was a goldsmith and they settled in Valenza. Cavalli became interested in sport as a child and was very involved in athletics. And she actually ended up being on the Italian national team. So she was rather talented um but she had dreams of becoming an actress so in her mid-20s she made a career move and began acting in italian tv and film productions in the late 1980s she's best known to italian audiences for her role as dr ornella bruni in the long-running so in posto al sol which we've mentioned on the podcast before but for italian genre cinema fans she'll be familiar for her role as sharon mason and umberto lenzi's the house of witchcraft and jane and antonio margariti's alien from the deep and she also played fabio testi's love interest in nina gracia's action film first action hero in the mid-1990s. So although, yeah, as I said, she's not a prominent character in the film, she is somebody that has some more credits than some of the others because when we were picking people to do, it was a bit of a kind of, like, who should we choose? Because so many of the people in the film don't really have much in the way of film credits. So that's the logic yeah. there. And finally, Sergio, who's played by Giancarlo Preti, another one of those familiar faces that you might not be able to place. Prete was born on February 5th, 1943 in Rome and entered the film industry as a stuntman, having wrestled Greco-Roman for the curious during his law studies and then joined a team of stuntmen working extensively during 1961 to 67. He started acting and made his debut in 1968 in the TV series L'Odyssea, a six-episode miniseries based on Homer's Odyssey, directed by Franco Rossi with Mario Bava and Piero Givasappa working as assistant directors and Bava of course did some of the special effects as well. Prete started off in superhero films in the late 1960s appearing in Mr. X, Satanic and Criminal Film and he worked regularly in genre films such as Black Belly of the Tarantula, AAA Masseurs, Good Looking Officer Services and in Lady Hawk. He combined his film work with TV such as L'Eredita della Priora where Anita Strindberg and Alida Valley appeared as well the right television fashion crimes was his last film from 1985 onwards he started working with direction of dubbing and dialogue editing as well as teaching acting but he continued to work regularly until 1999 and he passed away on march 9th 2001 in rome aged just 58 another young death in italian genre cinema yeah it's sad there's been quite a few hasn't there yeah, a lot of young deaths. I suppose it's the time period as well. Maybe people didn't live as long. Right, should we get stuck in and talk a little bit about the film? Can I start? Yeah, if you want. I was just going to say that the opening to this film is one of the most frustrating aspects of the film to me because it shows so much promise. I've seen this film four or five times now, including the preparations for this, and it gets me 
every time because you've got this fantastic slice of 80s pop save tonight for me playing over the credits as you see a, like a really attractive cast and you get the impression that you're about to watch a nothing underneath inspired jello with high production value set at a fashion house and taking advantage of what at least i imagine will be a sort of naturally competitive and sometimes a bit bitchy atmosphere so it's a perfect setup and that lasts about four minutes how do you feel about the opening do you not feel that it shows so much promise no i'm in absolute agreement i think like recently we've seen a better quality print of the film and i think if anything that makes it more frustrating yeah because it does have such promise it's that glamorous like glitzy fashion world we've got all the different kind of models coming in and these grandiose costumes and it feels like there's this promise i should say of a nothing underneath style thriller and it very quickly falls away yeah it's a shame because there's a really nice like vibe at the start of the film and it's Jacob Wheeler isn't it that does the, the opening song yeah. and I love that it's just like a really good piece of kind of 80s kind of synth or electronic styled bit of pop music and yeah so much promise that just never really delivers and I suppose that's what we're kind of going to go into throughout the course of this discussion of the film itself because it does feel like there's a lot of wasted potential here yeah and every time I rewatch it I keep thinking oh this is probably better th than I remember it to be and then after those four minutes it, it kind of slips away again so as we mentioned before like even in the worst examples of, of films in the genre you get these scenes that are memorable so if you watch nothing else here make sure you watch the credit sequence yeah I would agree with that. I think as well, like people coming to the film for the first time, if you see the poster, you hear the title Fashion Crimes, you watch that intro, you're going to have certain expectations. And I think that the way that the film is sold, and I know like a lot of these films are sold in a way that doesn't necessarily transpire, but I think this film in particular really sells itself as a kind of nothing underneath style gel and it's really anything but. Yeah. As mentioned, Fashion Crimes is a film that's trying to capitalise on the success of Carlo Vincini's Nothing Underneath, whilst also recalling classic tropes of the Italian thrillers of the 1970s. And that's that's very much present in the film setup, which is preoccupied by this idea of the reliability of memory. So we're talking about the bit that kind of comes after this initial opening scene that we just talked about. Of course, this is a prominent strand of Argento's work, and this idea is present in multiple films um, of the golden period, like Luciano Arcoli's Death Walks at Midnight, in which a model seemingly views a murder from afar, but there's no evidence of a crime taking place. Very much like the character of Gloria here, who believes she's seen a crime that there's no evidence of. Therefore, we have this idea of the unreliable narrator, this onus of proof that's then placed on our protagonist to others dismiss as crazy. And here we have this novel idea presented to us of hypnotherapy being used to unlock these fragmented memories that Gloria has of what supposedly happened at the villa. So we have this psychological bent, as is typical of the giallo, and what I would say is rather effective, or would have been more effective if developed further, that's probably more true, um, is the idea that we don't really know what happened at the villa and what Gloria saw. There's a certain amount of doubt over her claims, especially due to the impossibility of the situation, uh, due to the villa being uninhabited for the past 20 years. The doctor himself is someone to be suspicious of due to his links to the villa and the way in which he's potentially manipulating her mind. So again, this distrust of memory or how memories can be distorted. And I find that rather interesting in the context of the time period this takes place in because there is certainly somewhat of a distrust of psychiatry and ideas about false memories being implanted or coaxed out of patients. And we tend to hear about that, I think, more from kind of an American's perspective. 
but there were certainly examples of that in Europe and in Italy. So Gaviru's film presents to us a scenario that is very commonplace in the Argento style giallo of what happened versus what we the audience saw or what our protagonist saw and that's very much the crux of many of the successful giallo we love. However the film takes somewhat of an unconventional route I'd say because we learn that this idea of memory isn't the individual memories of Gloria but actually a latent psychic power that allows her to tap into the memories of the Countess. So a traditional giallo premise about memory and perception that gives way to the supernatural bent and it sounds when I put like that I like I've obviously I've written like notes there it makes it sound like much better film than this because there's a lot of promise in that concept yeah you mentioned a few films that that it's inspired by and you can easily bring in Lucio Fulci's The Psychic Mm -hmm. into that fold as well I think and that film manages to sell visions or memories or whatever it is you don't really know when the film starts so much better than it than they managed to do here as you say the police don't believe her at all they write her off as a hysteric which is kind of understandable since the villa's abandoned and there's no sign that there's been anybody there or indeed a body so the police writes her off by saying that it's a weird circle too much of everything luxury money and drugs and that's how i'm gonna end the report <laughs> they bring in these these aspects of visions i don't know that they, they make it overly complicated for themselves in a way i'd say no yeah i'd agree i think the premise there is quite muddled i think it could be handled a lot better or like you've mentioned filches a psychic i think that's a film that deals with similar issues and similar themes in a much better kind of cohesive way here it's just a bit confusing it feels like ill thought out and that premise never really leads anywhere really doesn't using mediums or visions it's there in deep red as well and the psychic as we said but these paranormal things are there in quite a few jelly but it's rarely been as lazily done as here i mean the only explanation really is that gloria is sensitive and has picked up these signals from the past she mentions how she's being affected by address and feeling that it's not for her and maybe it belongs to greta stella a designer who was famous in the 60s so it's quite clunky expository dialogue as well but there's no other mention of her having this ability either so it just reeks of laziness of the part of the scriptwriter, really yeah it's not ambiguous enough to feel like oh that's the conclusion you should naturally draw and it's actually quite clever because it's all in the subtext it just feels like there's those lines that you mentioned and it's funny you use the word clunky because when I was writing my notes of kind of criticisms of the film the word clunky is what I use to describe the dialogue in general it's quite illy I'm conceived I think but yeah like you say it's, it's not obvious enough to feel satisfactory and it's not in the subtext enough to feel satisfactory it just feels very laboured yeah because there are these ideas that exist within the film you know about the passage of time and how characters are are linked in terms of their pasts and what their past reveal about their connections to the crimes and one another and unfortunately I feel like that concept really isn't developed either. It's certainly not developed sufficiently for a number of reasons but I mean it's it's a concept as I said that I find rather intriguing. I like this idea of the villa almost being representative of the veils of time and by being there Gloria's transported back 20 years and the space allows her to connect with the Countess's tragic last moments and the opera music there almost has this transitory feel as well and yeah you mentioned the fashion there I'll touch on that probably later on in the production design part of the podcast but there's just visual things they could have done that would have maybe emphasized this idea of different time periods in a more satisfactory way and the film that comes to mind for me that did something like this rather nicely was Peter Del Monte's Etoile from the same year mm. I feel like that's oh, yeah. maybe like something like that would have worked better I'd like that idea of you know because they keep saying the 60s and making reference to that and we know we're in 89 and you just feel like 
can they not make something more of the fact that this is happening in different time periods and glorious that connection between the two yeah because they can't even be bothered to properly develop that there's a scene where gloria goes to the library to find out some information and she talks to the librarian who says that i remember greta stiller i used to work for her in the 60s which is at least 20 years ago in the context of the film and it's an impossible equation since that librarian is no more than 30 so it's just like sloppy stuff like that the whole time yeah no it's, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I put that in my notes I was I, I picked up in the d- different bit there she said something like my granddaughter and I was like how the fuck can you have a granddaughter you're like 35 or something yeah and yeah. it's like like you say that's just something sloppy like there's there's no excuse for that and again you could have done more with that thing with the librarian and the ages and she knew this person and how everything connects but no, didn't happen. No. And I think the dialogue part of it as well, as you mentioned, that really hurts Franciosa because, as you said, we, we both really like him in Tenebrae. We picked him as one of our favourite characters in the Jello in the Patron episode. And he does so well in Argento's film. It's not that he's bad here, it's just that he's got nothing to work with. The Rizzo character is underwritten to a point where Franciosa's natural charm doesn't even manage to carry it. That's excellently put. Like, it's completely the way with this character because he's so much of a presence in Tenebrae he's just completely underutilized here and I, I don't know if it's because he didn't have much time to film or like it was a smaller role and if it required you know more writing they didn't have that and they wanted him to be this prominent character I'm not sure but it just feels like why have you got big Tony F and if you're not gonna use him properly and his whole characterization is yeah. based on like a fish as a metaphor yeah. for like catching the killer which doesn't really work very well no to me it feels fairly obvious that there's some reference to Franciosa's character in Tenebrae and here he comes out with the same sort of almost sage-like advice to his assistant like sometimes in our line of work facts aren't enough yeah. and risk big in order to win even if it's mean hurting somebody else the lines are just so bad that it's no way that he'll be able to carry those with any kind of well I was going to say dignity <laughs> but with any kind of conviction no I'm, I'm in absolute agreement with you because I was going to ask you like about how you feel Gloria's character is and one of the things I kind of made a note of is that I think it's hard because her character is so poorly written but also I don't think yeah. Teresa Leopardi is a great actress but then you know they're not giving her anything to work with and I don't know if the direction was particularly good either um, and yeah. I just feel like nobody no matter how good you are as an actor like clearly with Anthony Franciosa like you just can't do anything with the material that you're given so even if you're a great actor a weak actor like there's just not much to go on yeah I think Leopardi's probably not I mean, she's not brilliant, but she's not the worst actress I've seen in, a, in an Italian genre film either. L- but like you say, there's nothing there on paper. The only character where it feels like they've made some kind of effort in terms of character is Rizzo. But it's those lines that I just mentioned, and it's him being funny. And it doesn't come off well, does it? You get scenes like when he helps the gardener sweep the floor, or the ongoing joke about the hard catch fish. These scenes, they're just not funny, and they fall flat pretty much every single time unfortunately yeah his role's really quite dull and then we have that assistant as well who offers nothing and it just feels like they're superfluous to the plot really and then I think because you've got these different characters vying for screen time well I say vying for screen time like their roles are kind of written like in piecemeal that you don't really go you don't really get much of a sense of other characters like the doctor I would have liked to see more of him because he's obviously this presented at times as a nefarious character but we're not really given enough to form like a proper opinion Dr. Olga I feel is completely like 
like underutilized as well she would have been like a good red herring but nothing comes of that and then you've just got yeah like I said Anthony who's completely dull in the film not because he's not charismatic as an actor just because of the role yeah the only red herrings they've got really is Giorgio who's accused of stealing jewels from from Greta Stiller and then O'Keefe's character is one of the eight owners of the villa So they try to shoehorn them in, and Giorgio in particular, because he has to appear seconds after Gloria's been attacked, so they can make him a, a prime suspect in that way. Yeah, which isn't exactly the best writing. I hated that, like the eight owners of the villa. It seems such a strange number. Yeah, another completely pointless thing. And the other thing is, if this woman who owned the villa is missing, and people presume that she's left for South America or something, why are other people owning her villa? Yeah, it's like, surely you'd have to be kind of like presumed dead at that point and then yeah which she doesn't seem to be yeah you don't know enough about the family politics really to have an opinion either and that's the thing it's like it's very hard to care about any of these characters in the film like for example Gloria I feel like she's so passive as a protagonist and I mean we're not saying like these films have the most you know forthright female protagonists but Gloria in particular just feels so dull and you don't care about her she doesn't have a personality it's like she's Teresa Leopardi is very beautiful she's got screen presence for sure but there's just nothing there about her like and there's no there's no progression of her character right this idea of maybe she has this as you said like sensitivity these like powers I say powers powers make sense supernatural but you know like these like yeah. latent kind of psychic powers or whatever um, and that would maybe even be a chance for her to grow as a character this idea of that she realises that she has seen this or she's got something within her and that means that she's not this weak passive model but nothing gets done with that either and it just feels like no. another wasted opportunity yeah that would have been the natural thing to do to have other little things happen or her having visions of what's going to happen or what's happened before in other places but nothing comes of that yeah so there are a few set pieces in the film but they're all fairly bloodless and the film in general is quite restrained in terms of violence and you can definitely tell that the general sort of atmosphere is in the vein of Vancina's thrillers and aimed at a wider more mainstream audience so there's nothing here that will offend anybody too much it almost feels like it at least partly aimed at tv yeah it's like kind of i said earlier it's just that flat television style which it's pretty common in films of this era but I don't I don't know I feel like there's just it's never fully an excuse is it like obviously we're working on reduced budgets and there's less that you can do probably tighter shooting schedules but then that was the case of these films you know like you know 15 years prior so I don't I mean obviously it's a lower budget than nothing underneath but I just feel like there's no excuse for how flat the thing feels it's just very static as a film are there any of the the set pieces that stands out to you that's interesting in any way Uh, yeah like well for me one of my favorite scenes is probably the moment when Gloria believes her flat has been broken into. So we have some quite yeah. nice stylish imagery that we would typically associate with the shallow or it's just like I know I just said a minute ago like it's not a stylish film which on the whole it isn't but this is the one bit that really stands out and you know you have the brightly coloured flashing lights not that I'm saying they're intrinsic to the shallow but it just adds a bit of visual drama. Then you of course you've got yeah. that black gloved killer smashing through glass and I like the set dressing of that piece and you have the almost like 1980s cruising style mannequin in the corner of the room. So I do think that bit's well done and like the bit in the car park and stuff is decent enough but the set pieces don't really stay in your mind do they i think that's maybe the problem What about you? What do you think about the film set? No, I think I think the one in Glorious Flats the best one as well because that's the only one that's got any kind of semblance of tension. Yeah. But that too is kind of marred by the the slightly stilted acting and the direction because the killer makes his way towards Gloria in this like theatrical, almost frozen pose with a raised knife, which gives her ample time to get away and hide in the dark room. And and the killer puts his knife through the door like the bird with a crystal plumage. And as she said 
said the the set dressing and stuff is is good in that scene that i find the first set piece really frustrating where gloria's attacked in the hospital during the day and the killer is stalking her when she's lying there in bed she wakes up and she sees the killer standing over her with a syringe i believe yeah. and she's just told the police that the killer had his back towards her in in the vision and that she wouldn't be able to recognize him but she's really like scared of this person who's standing over her who's dressed in hospital attire with a syringe and she's convinced that he's the killer and when you find out who the killer is it's even more strange because you'd think that even if she hasn't worked for him before she as a model would be quite familiar with the face of a really well-known designer yeah no it's a good point and it's one that doesn't completely add up really does it that's the thing there's just all these kind of inconsistencies and even like you know we give a lot of films like a pass for inconsistencies but I think there's so many in this film that it's hard to overlook some of them and the resolution isn't great so you don't get that payoff where you can go well that's fine it just feels like when you get to the end I don't really care too much about the resolution and who was involved yeah Contini and the commissioner they come up with this plan and how they're gonna approach Gloria and say that they know how to make her remember the face of the killer all in the hope of scaring the real killer and bringing him out so it turns out that it's the designer Sebastiano Lacari who's killed this woman 20 years ago and that he had designed the dresses for her and she'd sold them and he couldn't forgive her so he killed her and walled her up in the room uh, where she was killed in sort of deep red style so yeah it's a quite unsatisfactory ending really yeah and it has to end on that comedy note where Rizzo asks um, Contini if he thinks he could hypnotize an animal if he could hypnotize that pike for him so he could catch it and it's just yeah it feels needless or doesn't warrant that like it, the comedy hasn't really been sufficient throughout the film for that to feel like a hilarious payoff it's like oh the fish again yeah that was shoehorned in in the first place yeah i don't know what like for me on my first watch oh god this is many moons ago i i don't think i was surprised at the identity of the killer but i just thought it was more likely to be one of the doctors like i mentioned before um, certainly like Dr. Yeah. Olga was the person I probably suspected the most. And I think, as I think about it now, it's, it's a very chaste film, really, isn't it? Because, I mean, when you look at yeah, the, the romantic so. aspect, there really isn't a romantic aspect. I always kind of thought, or even every time I watch it again, I think, oh, it's going to, there's going to be more to that but nothing really materializes and which is odd because you feel like that's something that you would have in, in a thriller film especially one of this era you know we're just in the wake we're just kind of coming up to all those erotic thrillers and um what's it called Spogliando Valeria is a yeah. lot more in that style so I don't know why they decided maybe again like you said they were trying to make it more of a you know, not too violent, not too sexual affair. But then there's not really any excuse to have, like, no romance. Yeah, because it's certainly not a steamy romance between Gloria and Sergio. No, not at all. A lot of missed opportunities here, really. Yeah, and I think that's why we're so frustrated. Like, we don't tend to be this critical in our podcast. As you'll know, we do really try and, like, come up with things that we enjoy. And I think, like, in terms of our analysis here, what's frustrating us is that we can just see so many missed opportunities. There's some really good ideas and quite a cool concept and places but it just doesn't really come to fruition and it feels like it could be a much better film which is with a bit you know like tighter writing and the development of certain ideas after that impressive opening montage of of this photo shoot there's very little um you get a few scenes of women modeling dresses but it feels very much like they've randomly added some mannequins to a few of the corridors of an office to make it like a fashion house there's no sense that there's a fashion house like it's a fashion house at all 
all, really. I mean, the initial opening, yeah, you can get the sense that it's a studio, but that that modelling bit, like you feel like it's going to be some sort of big fashion shoot. And again, coming back to the poster, and obviously we're not going to rely on posters, but I think you do get the impression that there will be this set piece fashion show and it is just like someone's front room with people walking yeah. up and down and it feels like a real missed opportunity. You could have a really nice set piece at that point. Yeah. Not great. <laughs> no, unfortunately not. And especially with that really promising beginning, it just feels like even more of a letdown. Yeah. Have we got anything more to say about it? Or is that about it? That is no, about like, it, is that just, it. I feel like everything we well we just we have like pointed out the bits that we think are good and the potential there, but um yeah, I don't really have much else to say about it really than what we've discussed there. Nothing else that really stands out in my mind about the film. But also, as we've said, it's supposed to be in the style of nothing underneath, but with nods to classic Shelley, and it just doesn't quite pan out that way. There's some strange editing going on as well. I mean, it's not really jarring. It's just some odd editing choices, I think, in terms of, of how they cut between scenes and like transitions and stuff, which is, I wouldn't say off-putting, but it just, it took me a little bit out of, of the film. I know what you mean. Again, it feels a bit clunky, doesn't it? Yeah. A bit hastily put together. Should we talk a little bit about the production history? Yep, I'd be interested to know a bit more. The film was produced by Luciano Apignani for L'Imagine, and it's started shooting in July 1988 and at the time it had the English title Death is in Fashion and is shot throughout August at least. It was shot by director of photographer Sergio Rubini who had worked as a camera operator during the during the later half of the 1960s and in 1974 he'd had his first credit as a cinematographer on Stavio Massi's Guida Uccide il Vendredi and he worked frequently with Massi and also shots horror fave dawn of the mummy as well as jello nine guests for a crime during his career and i think i mean there are a few attempts to make some interesting shots i think when gloria remembers the murder committed in the house we see it in silhouette but like rubini is no vittorio storaro and it ends up more looking like a sort of theatrical shadow play than than these contrasting silhouettes in the fifth chord for example i did try on on my second watch now to zoom in a bit on the image because i think the version that at least i've seen is open mat so when i zoomed in it mimics a letterbox version and it looks a little bit better masked and not quite as flat but again it's workmanlike cinematography there's not much visual flair to it i'd say no i agree i mean i do do think the bit in the villa like as well is quite nicely done when she goes through the corridor and then we see that silhouette of the two shadows i mean that's quite like classic charlotte imagery but i mean it's not enough to really sustain the film visually um and maybe in another film that would have been they would come back to that shot a couple of times and maybe lensed it in a different way each time yeah like really emphasize that but again another missed opportunity i think but that would have been quite an interesting slant on it in terms of fashion i assume you had a field day anyway uh yeah well a a bit anyway not like i don't go crazy (laughs) it wasn't like a nothing underneath style one but um yeah disappointingly for a film dubbed fashion crimes the glamorous world of fashion and modeling isn't overly present i imagine it's largely due to budgetary constraints but it's somewhat underwhelming when we compare the film to other fashion focused films of the period like nothing underneath delirium and too beautiful to die no especially nothing underneath which this film seeks to ape the popularity of fashion crime title certainly raises an expectation that doesn't really come to fruition but there is an attempt to bring some glamour to proceedings the costumes for the fashion shoot were provided by the italian fashion designer tito rossi 
and that's quite interesting in itself because Rossi was a prominent designer in the 1960s which the fashions um, in the film are supposed to be evocative of because as we've established there's this connection between 1969 and 1989 throughout the film. In fact our fashion designer here refers to the collection as inspired by the styles of the 60s. As we've discussed we have these allusions to the past throughout the film with comparisons drawn between Gloria and the Countess and there's an attempt to convey this at one point in the film during the fashion shoot in which Gloria comments that the dress isn't you know her and as you've said already and she really seems to be uncomfortable wearing it almost like she's wearing a dead woman's clothes. Unfortunately I don't think this idea of the 1960s influence in Gloria's clothing particularly runs true and I reckon the scene would be far more satisfying and true to the film's concept if there was an attempt to stage that fashion scene with costumes and set dressing that feel more in tune with the style of an couture 60s fashion show you know very much in the style of like Mario Bava's Blood and Black Lace with the more classic looks of the decade like I think like her black dress and styling and makeup it looks amazing in this scene but I just don't think it rings true for her feeling uncomfortable and like it's this women's kind of haute couture from the, the 60s I just don't think that it no. doesn't come across that at all to me it's like a very like 1989 style bloke which which it is yeah and the thing is it didn't even come across as ringing true to me <laughs> and then you kind of realize how bad it is if even i can <laughs> can see that it's not like evocative of a 60s dress yeah and especially like it's she's supposed to be like this german countess that was like dripping in jewels and we've got this like slicked back hair and like this cami dress for a very skinny woman and stuff it's, it just doesn't really ring true for me um yeah, and it yeah. doesn't convey that idea of the merging of two time periods you could even be clever with it and try and like do us an 80s come 60s look but i don't think i think i'm giving far too much uh, thought into that really but the rest of fashion crimes costumes were provided by franco juicy and they're very much in keeping with what we'd expect from the 1980s or late 1980s lots of color and pastels and vibrant playful prints all accessorized with massive statement earrings and the fact we're in 1989 is made abundantly clear when we have this line during the fashion shoot of make the shoulder pads larger which you know are words to look <laughs> by <laughs> Um, I'll just quickly mention interiors as well, like settings here. Um, there are several locations yeah. throughout the film that have been present in other genre works. The mysterious villa is Villa Monte Mario in Rome, and Villa Monte Mario has been used in many, many films. So that's why it might be familiar to some, and it's like in The Libertine and Touch of Death and films like that. I'd also like to mention Dr. Olga. I think it's Dr. Olga's penthouse flat. It's actually one of my favourite interiors from Italian genre cinema of the 1980s, and it's been used in many films as well, um, predominantly comedies. And my personal favourite usage of the interior where it's really shown in all of its glory is the shallow parody Deliti e Profumi. As I said it's a very feminine pink space with lacquered pink and purple cabinets and a strange pool that sort of connects to the living room. Yeah and it's got like a, a bright pink kitchen which is a really it's a really distinctive and quite strange like interior that you don't really get the full image of in this film but trust me it's there um, and I've actually got I think I've got like a half written blog post on it so I'll have to finish it so people can see what I mean about the crazy um, interior design. Oh please. Yeah please. I'll do that with this leopard sitting in this pink kitchen yeah there's not really too much else to say as we kind of mentioned there's that whole issue with the fashion shoot being quite staid and boring so the settings aren't overly that interesting the thing that struck me when I watched it is that it feels like the mannequins are to 80s jelly what suits of armour are to gothic horror films really yeah absolutely <laughs> you, you just wait for the moment when they're going to start falling over <laughs> I just think somebody got like a job lot of mannequins yeah. and, like dressing them up in little leather caps and other <laughs> <laughs> And the other thing we have to mention is that giant swatch watch that she's got hanging on the wall in her flat because that feels very much a throwback to us who lived through the 80s with swatch watches. Not that size, but 
This yeah, the oh. regular sized number. The regular sized ones. Yeah. I called like that the bit in her flat. Like I, I didn't write anything on it, but it's quite like a cool time capsule, isn't it? Because you've got that almost like Memphis Milano, like Amoeba style bedding, and like very eight like eight late eighties phone and the the pillars and things like that. So yeah. it, I really like it from an, an design point of view. It's a cool setting. Yeah, I'd love the space. I mean, the loft style. Yeah, uh, a bit like um, you know, when you think about like interiors and um, obsession. It for fear and dial help have kind of similar you know that almost like industrial style pillars yeah. and things which i'm i always quite like that style yeah it's just thought there with you mentioning the the mannequins like i'm just going back in my mind like what mannequins have we featured on the podcast and there's that mannequin with the baseball cap from mystere as well so yeah. we can move on from our dead animal um cataloging on this podcast to what the 80s mannequin is wearing on his head it <laughs> <laughs> can be every time we do an 80s show spot the head game. yeah in terms of music, I've already mentioned the track Save Tonight for Me, which is a highlight. It was written by Piero Montanari and performed by Jacob Wheeler, as you said. And I believe the track was first used in D'Amato's 11 Days and 11 Nights, but it also pops up on the soundtrack to Umberto Lenz's Ghost House. I've been playing it on repeat this week. I, I love it. It's a perfect opening track and it really gives you a flavour of that luxurious kind of yacht pop from the late 80s quite comparable to a track like vincent Thomas' um, faceless track from the jess franco film which is in a similar style oh yeah no that's a good comparison yeah you're right i didn't think about that i love both those tracks and the rest of the score was composed by filippio trecca i think it works fairly well for the diegetic music and the more up-tempo tracks and perhaps less well known for the dramatic cues because it seems to go for apart from the opera music which i think works quite well as it did in Inferno as well but he seems to go for this quite bombastic style and he overdoes the synth stabs quite a lot so it almost feels like a parody of like horror film music but there are some subdued more subdued parts to the dramatic cues that I think work fairly well but overall is not really a memorable score apart from that one track I think. The film opened in early August 1989 nearly a year after it first started shooting I'm not quite sure what the delay was but it meant that it was released at almost the same time as Gabura's next film as, as you mentioned Bogliando Valeria or Jealous Ice erotic thriller starring um, Dalila de la Rasso and that's probably the more interesting film out of the two to be honest there are certainly a few sequences that are more well put together than here but overall I'd say there are probably more giallo tropes in this than in uh, Spogliando Valeria. Gabura directed a few more films, a few more sexy comedies and some of his work was also cribbed for the film Rosse per una squillo but since 1993 when he directed his last feature film he's only got a handful of TV movie credits over the last 20 years or so not quite sure what he's up to these days but I would assume that he's at least retired. It must be a fair age now right yeah 39 so it's he's early 80s uh if he's still alive but i've found no indication that he's not again he's probably one of those figures that we're not going to really hear from on extras because i i mean i know we never say never but i just can't see the demand for his work on no. blu-ray so i think that's probably going to be a missed opportunity when you were talking about his later films there i'd quite like to get hold of is it what's that algine signora per bene the one that was cribbed for um the dahlia film from 1983 this one's what 1990 yeah because um, that's a fashion house setting as well. I mean, probably loosely, but yeah, I'm quite intrigued by that one. Right. Do you want to sum up our <laughs> our positive thoughts on this film? <laughs> 
So fashion crimes might be more of a lower tier shadow, but despite its languid pace and televisual feel, there are elements here that make it somewhat of an interesting watch and a window into a time when the Italian thriller was in a state of flux. The references back to Golden Period Shelley are sure to resonate with fans of the genre, and the presence of a somewhat unreliable narrator who possesses an innate psychic ability is an interesting concept. But ultimately, fashion crimes fails to really feel like a cohesive and engaging work, but it does offer glimmers of a satisfying 1980s shadow. It's just a shame that the concept never quite materializes yeah well summed up that's fair it is it's a missed opportunity it could have been a lot better they should have left the psychic elements alone i think they could have made a much better film that would have hung together much better see i don't mind the psychic element i just it's yeah the way that it's been done so i suppose you're right it's that like either do one or the other but probably better just not to complicate matters with it yeah but the thing is as you said before they don't make any difference between the 60s and the 80s and i think if you can't do it properly it probably would have been better to leave it alone and just go for a straight up thriller i mean i don't mind the psychic elements either i think it could have been really good if it would have been properly incorporated into the film but it's not really there on paper i would think and it's certainly not there on screen so it doesn't quite work yeah i think like if you didn't have that element there then probably you could develop other aspects and it could be a bit neater and developed i feel sorry for people listening to this because they've probably heard the two of us say underdeveloped <laughs> like not developed and i just we keep saying like the same like thing but it's yeah it's pretty much how we feel about it or like wasted potential that's it Wasted opportunity and wasted yeah. potential is what we've said about a million times this episode. And we don't yeah. we don't like to be critical, as we've said before, but um, I kind of feel like it would be a bit disingenuous for us to really praise this. And I think, like, for those of you who've listened to our last episode on The Double, it feels a bit like night and day. And obviously there's flaws in that film, but here it just feels like the flaws outweigh the positives. Yeah, unfortunately. Before we finish, we just want to congratulate um, a patron of the show and a patron and a friend of the show, Jeremy Ritchie, who's writing a book on Sylvia Crystal and who's just got his first commentary track included on the upcoming Cult Epics release of Just Jackin's Madame Claude. So congratulations, Jeremy. Look forward to checking that out when it's eventually released. Yeah, really exciting news. It's always nice to see our friends like succeeding and I know this has been a big passion project for him that he's continuously working on in the commentary. I know he's like probably given his absolute all to it and done thorough research and has come up with a really fun and entertaining commentary. So yeah, definitely one worth seeking out because I think it's a film that will probably appeal to quite a few people that listen to the show. Would say not seen it myself, so looking forward to checking it out. Good. For those of you who pledged to us via Patreon, we can reveal that our next episode is on some of our favourite set pieces of the shadow, so that should be a fun discussion, I reckon. As always, feel free to send us any thoughts you have on our upcoming topic. We'd love to hear from you. And if you want to reach us on social media, you can find us on Facebook at slash fragments pod. Instagram at Fragments Pod, Instagram at Fragments Pod, on our individual Twitter accounts, Rachel underscore Nisbet or Signal Ward, or you can mail us at fragmentspod at gmail.com. We'd like to thank the wonderful Ozarks for allowing us usage of their cover of the main titles to Seven Bloodstained Orchids for our Fragments of Fear theme music, and that's available to purchase via their bandcap at castleozarks.com. Well, that pretty much wraps up our last episode of 2020. We hope you all have a lovely festive season and a very happy new year. We really hope that the podcast has provided a small slither of happiness during this turbulent year, and we're really looking forward to joining you all in 2021 for plenty more film discussion and some fun new projects. 
until then all the best thank you very much bye